Now, as we turn to our teaching time this morning, I have the privilege and the pleasure of introducing you to a really good friend to Sound City, a true partner in the gospel. We've been using that language this summer to talk about many of our guests who partner with us in preaching the good news of Jesus, and that description fits this gentleman really, really well. Uh, His name is Dave Harvey, and for those of you who don't know Dave, Dave is uh, a pastor at a church called Summit Church in South Florida. Uh, He's also an author, and he's also the executive director of the Sojourn Network, of which we are a part. And so, Dave, if you want to come and join us, can we welcome Dave, you guys? Yeah. I feel like it's been a long time coming. It's so great to have you here finally. So great, to, uh, really happy and excited to introduce you to so many more of the folks of Sound City. I know they're going to enjoy time with you this morning. If it's okay, I'd like to pray for you, pray yeah, for us, and then I'll leave it in your capable hands after that. Sure. Lord God, uh, we thank you for our brother Dave. We thank you for the way he serves so faithfully uh, all across this country and beyond, really. Uh, we pray for his family as they um, seek to figure out what's what to do next for them, just as, as with all the storms in Florida, how, how they seek to serve others in Florida as well as a result of all the storms and the damage that's happened. And so be with them and uh, protect them, Lord, and encourage their hearts. And encourage Dave's heart this morning as he teaches your words and give him just the words to say. And We love you, Lord, and we pray all this through your Son and by your Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Shane. Morning. It's, uh, it's really a thrill for me to, to be here. I, I've, I've been wanting to be here for a while, ever since the first time I sat down with the leadership team here, which I've done on several different occasions, and ever since I've had the opportunity to be with, with uh, Aaron and Aaron, and I apologize if those names sound exactly the same when they come out of my mouth. That's a Pittsburgh thing, where the ARs and the ERs sound are virtually interchangeable. But, uh, and so ever since I've gotten to know the folks that are leading you, I've thought, oh my, I really want to get to know the people in that church. So it's, it's wonderful to be here this morning, and, and I thank you for receiving me so warmly. Uh, Shane mentioned that I have the privilege of, of providing some leadership of Sojourn Network, and I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear that word network, but... Sojourn Network is a ministry that is filled with pastors. They are informed pastors. They're broken pastors. They're earthy pastors. But they're they're men who want to have a place to go for counsel and a a kind of supplemental care. And they realize that that their, their church will be stronger and their leadership will be stronger if they have a place to go where they can receive those kinds of things, a place where they can be kind of sharpened on mission and how to think about reaching the community in a more effective way, a place where they can sit with people that are unimpressed by the size of their intellect or the size of their church and folks that will ask hard questions and insist upon honest answers. And so, you know, Sojourn Network starts with, with pastors but it doesn't end there because it's, it's also churches, just like Sound City. Churches that have, that have recognized that we can accomplish together far more than any one church can accomplish alone. And so we have decided to partner together in order to plant churches. And by the grace of God, it seems like that's, that's happening right now where we have the privilege of, of supporting 15 different church planters and in different parts of the United States. And, uh, and that wouldn't be happening 
that, that kind of fruit would not be happening if not for the vision of local churches just like Sound City. So, you know, we're not a big group and we're not exceptionally talented, but we are trying to be faithful and we are so grateful that we get to attempt that together with a church like, like Sound City. So thank you. Acts chapter 17, please. I've been asked to share from Acts chapter 17 by Aaron on the topic of gospel fluency, gospel fluency, and I'll define that in just a minute, but let's go ahead and read the passage, beginning in verse 16, Acts chapter 17, verse 16, and I'm going to read through the end of that chapter. Now, while Paul was standing waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took hold of him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him From the dead. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, We will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Let's pray. Lord, we want to thank you for the opportunity we now have to to gaze into the life-transforming Word of God and to allow you to work in us and through us as we seek to understand what you're saying to us. And God, I pray that you would use this time, you would use this message to serve these good people today. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Our title, Gospel Fluency, was chosen to express one simple idea that I think springs up from this text. In fact, it's one simple idea that's often repeated in the New Testament, and that is that when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. When you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Pepsi Corporation learned this the hard way that years ago they took a slogan. It was their slogan at the time. It was, come alive with the Pepsi generation. The problem was that when they went to translate that into Chinese, they translated it as, Pepsi brings your relatives back from the dead. (laughs) And so sales plummeted in China. The reputation of, of Pepsi took a huge hit in China because no one checked the translation. I mean, I'm kind of a Coke guy, and I believe Pepsi can kill you, but it's certainly not going to bring your, res- your relatives back from the dead. But the problem was someone that was doing the translating wasn't fluent, and so they sounded foolish, which returns us to the lesson that when you're taking your message to the world, it helps to know how to translate it. Now, just for a second, leave that hanging suspended off to the side. Let's set it there, and let's just go back to the text. Let's go back and understand a bit of the context of what's taking place in Acts chapter 17. So the gospel, the unconquerable gospel, is now migrating out. And Paul has found himself arriving in Athens. And Athens is this cosmopolitan urban center with different people and customs and and languages And so Paul was in a position where, once again, he must find the bridge between the good news and a new culture, between the good news and a new people. And it's here that I think we're going to begin to see the actual scope of Paul's skills in gospel translation. And what we're going to study together is these different stages that Paul passes through that I think display what I'm calling his gospel Fluency. Now, don't get thrown by that word gospel fluency. When I say gospel fluency, when I say fluency, I simply mean, I'm simply talking about our ability to translate the gospel, to make it plain for the people or person that we're trying to reach. Just making the gospel plain for the people or person that we're trying to reach. So maybe right now you're trying to translate the gospel in some way for your neighbor. Or maybe it's a coworker, or maybe it's your kids, and you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to make it plain. You're trying to think about how to do that. 
Well, you're going to be really encouraged by the path and the experience of the Apostle Paul this morning. So what I have for you is four different stages of what I'm calling gospel fluency, four different stages that Paul walked through in this experience of becoming fluent by the gospel, beginning with, of course, stage one. Stage one is gospel perception, gospel perception. So gospel perception is simply seeing and understanding our fallenness through the gospel, seeing and understanding our fallenness through the gospel. And look at how this worked for Paul. Verse 16, right out of the gate, it says, Paul was waiting for them at Athens, and yet while he's waiting for them, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Now, just imagine this scene for a second. Paul is in Athens. He's, he's waiting for, for Silas and Timothy, and, and yet Paul was not tucked away in a hotel. He's not, he's not just deciding that he doesn't want to interact at all with the people of Athens. He doesn't want to be any part of that, but he's actually out among the people within the culture. He's bending down. He's reading the inscription on idols, and he's doing all of these things to get to understand who the people are. And what he discovers is this landscape that is filled with idols. Because the Athenians worshipped, I mean, literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of gods. In fact, they worshipped so many gods that they had an idol to the unknown god just to make sure they didn't miss any. I brought a quote with me this morning from John Stott on his commentary of, of the book of Acts where he says, this is what Paul saw, a city submerged in idols, submerged. I live in Naples right now. Downtown Naples is submerged in different places from the hurricane. I get submerged. You walk around in submerged and you realize things are underwater. You don't see them at all. That's the, that's the picture. That's the portrayal Stott is trying to make because this city was underwater with idols. And Paul sees that. And the passage says that Paul was, quote, provoked. Now, the Greek word for that particular reaction means he was greatly distressed. It means this kind of complicated blend between between anger and sadness, anger and sorrow. Why? Because he had this gospel perception. He's seeing their fallenness. He's seeing it through the gospel. He's feeling God's heart for the people that he is walking among. And I I want to come back to the idea that to gain this gospel perception, though, we have to be out and among the people. Paul is present. In verse 22, he says, he's describing how he he observed the objects of their worship. So he's he's walking around the city. He's, He's looking at what's going on. He's observing what's taking place. He's, he's evaluating. What does this mean? What does this say? Yeah, I mean, just stop right there and ask yourself your question. this question. Are you, are you in your neighborhood? Are you in your community? Are you going to your job thinking about what the idolatries that are so evident to you say about the people that you are called to reach? 
See, Paul's not just examining the people and the customs through a microscope, kind of coldly detached from them. He's not reading about them in the paper. He's not Googling them. He's, he, he's there. He's, Paul's not a tourist. You know, there's a big difference between a tourist and a witness. You know, t- tourists typically only ever see the best side of the land that they travel to. I, I've got a buddy. Uh, his name's Al. He traveled into Cuba for a number of years. He was traveling into Cuba during the, the Castro regime, and he was talking about how under the Castro regime, they just made sure that anybody that traveled to Cuba always had a tourist experience, only ever saw the best sides of Havana. The, the, best, the best portrayal of Cuba that could be made. So to make sure that, that they sparkled, that Cuba sparkled in the eyes of the tourists. And there is a sense where tourists want that. They prefer that because we want to see as a tourist the way that we encountered that land through the advertisement that we looked at or through the website that we were on. But that's different than a witness. That's a completely different experience. Witnesses are there like Paul in the culture, observing, evaluating, examining the fallenness, examining the idols, seeing what makes the people tick. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you actually pondered your neighborhood or the place that you work to think about what makes these people tick? What drives them? What do they love? It's so easy to be living in an area and still be a tourist. You know, still be just trying to encounter in the area the absolute best side, the side that sparkles and not the side that reminds us that these people are fallen. It's so easy to come to a place where we we look around and, you know, like a tourist, everybody just looks the same. You know, because we're from the outside, they're from the inside. We're only here for a little bit and everybody... You know, just kind of looks, I remember being at a conference once. I was, uh, I'd spoken in the morning, and then I went out with two men from Sri Lanka who were there as guests and had this wonderful lunch together and really enjoyed their company. At the end of lunch, I uh, stood up, said goodbye. I went and I embraced the ones. Thanks. It's great to be with you. Great to get to know you a little better. And when we pulled apart, he grabbed my shoulders and he said, wait a minute, you're the guy that spoke this morning. And I said, yeah, yeah, that was me. And he said, ah, you Americans, you all look alike to me. (laughs) And I thought, wait a minute, I thought, you know, I am an American. We're the only ones that are allowed to say that. We're the only ones that see the world that way. We are distinct in the way that we look to everybody else in the world. But there is this sense where culture can obscure our ability to see the differences, to really look beyond, and, and to, 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 it delivers us to a place at times where everybody just kind of looks the same and renders us a tourist and not a witness. See, gospel perception helps us to see the people and to understand their fallenness through the gospel so that we become a witness in the place that God has called us to be. So that first stage of of gospel fluency is gospel perception. God helps us to see the fallenness of the people, which leads us then to stage two, 
which is gospel engagement. Gospel engagement. See, this is where that gospel perception moved Paul and it moves us to action. It moved him towards engaging different groups of people in Athens. So the passage actually begins to list four different groups, just right out of the gate, beginning in verse 17, four different groups that Paul engaged. It says in verse 17 that he reasoned in the synagogue. So who would be in the synagogue? Anybody? Yeah, the Jews. So, so that's one group that he's engaging. That's one group that he's, he's reaching out with and connecting. But it also said that he reasoned in the marketplace every day, which would have taken him outside of the synagogue. It would have taken him to the Greeks and to the Gentiles and to the aliens, people from other countries, not other galaxies. <laughs> then it says in verse 18 that he, he was debating with the Epicureans. The Epicureans followed Epicurus. It's about 270 BC that this man walked around and began to teach that there was no afterlife. And so you basically need to live life to your fullest right now and enjoy all the pleasure you can and avoid all the pain that you can possibly enjoy and avoid in this life. Basically, an old school hedonist is what Epicurus was. And then it says that Paul was also debating the Stoics. The Stoics were like the rival gang of the Epicureans. They were the exact opposite of the Epicureans. They believed in God. They believed in something in afterlife. They believed that life was not pleasure, but life was about duty, particularly duty to a deity. And life was about submission. Life was about denying one's emotions and basically gutting it out. When James Stockdale's fighter jet was downed, shot down in Vietnam in 1965 within the war, he wrote in his journal and said, I am leaving the world of technology and I am entering the world of the Stoics. And he wrote that because he understood that the only way he was going to survive prison camp, the only way he was going to make it through being a prisoner of war was to deny the pain, was to fix himself on duty, was to take control of his emotions, to be a stoic. So Paul is among these people, all these different groups, and he's actively engaging them. He doesn't expect them to come to him. He's going to them, and he's talking to them. And his his perception of what he encountered among the Epicureans and their pleasure-seeking, among the Stoics and their denial of any emotion, among the Greeks, among the Jews, all of the different beliefs, his perception of their worship, his perception of their idols didn't disgust him. It didn't repulse him. In fact, it moved him to engage them all the more. Listen, let me make an important point this morning, and it's one I think we have to ponder and really consider if we're serious about reaching our community. And that is that we can't win people that we are adversarial towards. We will never win people that we are adversarial towards. One of the reasons that I I don't typically watch Fox News And this affects people differently, so this is just me. But for me, I come away with a sense 
that the folks that don't buy that brand of conservatism are just a bunch of liberal morons. And what that does for me is that that feeds my self-righteousness, which, by the way, doesn't need to be fed. It already exists fat and happy each and every day and works very well within my family and very well in my other relationships. But it creates this kind of adversarial mindset within me that puts me on the wrong path to ultimately loving somebody who thinks differently than me because I can't win somebody I'm adversarial towards. Actually, there's another side of that. We, we can't win people that we're ambivalent about. We can't win people that we don't care about. You know, one of the things about 2017 is that the name Norma McCorvey came back into the public stage because she died in February of 2017. Norma McCorvey had another name. It was Jane Roe. And she was the woman who basically pushed forward what ultimately became the law for abortion in 1973. After that happened, her life continued to spiral and she became a very desperate and despondent person, very depressed. She began working for an abortion clinic and and just felt like that was the natural path that she had to follow. She felt such darkness that there were times where she'd pick up the phone and that abortion clinic was in the same building as a crisis pregnancy center. She'd pick up the phone, she'd dial over to the crisis pregnancy center and she'd say, you know what we're doing over here? We're killing kids and she'd hang up the phone. And there was some folks in the crisis pregnancy center that rather than saying, oh, that's Jane Roe, or rather than saying, this is outrageous. We shouldn't have to deal with this. We need to talk to somebody about this. They began to say, what might it look like to show love to this woman who desperately needs a savior? And so they began to send over gifts. And eventually they'd pop in and pop their head in and say, hey, how you doing, Norma? And she didn't know what to do with that. And then at one point, the uh, the guy who ran the crisis pregnancy center had his, had his kids bake some cookies and the kids took it over to her. And day after day, week after week, they just loved this woman to the point where eventually they invited her to church and she came. And then she came a number of other times and she gave her life to Christ and was baptized and then lived the rest of her life and died this past February. Now, she had a lot of people a lot of Christians over the span of her life that immediately reacted to her when they found out who she was and what she had once represented. You can't win people that you don't care about. You can't win people that you are ambivalent about. I remember once uh, a, a professor making this statement, he who has the greatest truth has the greatest love, which is the greatest proof. If we have great truth, then we should have great love. And the great love substantiates the legitimacy of the truth. So we have to remember that the way we enter the field matters to the Lord of the harvest. It matters to him. 
because when he wanted to reach us, when we were desperately in need of a savior, when we were the ones that were hostile to God, when we violated his will, when we wanted to have nothing to do with him, when we were at enmity with God and actually regaled in the ways that we sin and didn't care at all about the fact that we weren't following Jesus Christ. What does he do? How does he respond to that? Does he step back in horror over our sin? No, he leaves the glory that he enjoyed in heaven. God stuffs himself into a man. He lives among us and loves us and serves us and dies for us and communicates the horror of our condition apart from him by loving us and caring for us. And and I see that in Paul here in Acts 17 where he didn't react to their idols. He didn't react to the horror of the crazy things they believed. The pleasure-seeking Epicureans, you know, that are just all, that are getting into all kind of bizarre sexuality because this is the only life and we might as well live it for all it is. But he wasn't living in reaction to that. He didn't withdraw from them. On, On the contrary, he pursued them. And Paul engaged these people so effectively, you know what they did? Is they invited him. Actually, they dragged him along to address all of them in the Areopagus, which leads us to our third point and our third stage, which is gospel facility. Gospel facility. Now, don't let that word throw you. I'm just talking about Paul's ability or his skill in applying the gospel. Gospel facility is about how we engage the culture. In other words, it goes beyond just seeing their fallenness, just seeing their their idols, but interpreting it in light of the gospel and and then doing something about it. And so Paul all of a sudden finds himself in the middle of the Areopagus. When you hear Areopagus, that was a location that was kind of like the, it was a combination of a university campus, a town square, and a pub. You know, it, that's, it's where the folks went to meet. It's where the folks went to relate. It's where they went to debate and talk and socialize. And so Paul's there, and he stands up, and this is, what he be, this is how he begins. I perceive that you are religious, because I noticed a particular altar in the middle of your square saying, to the unknown God. But I'm here to tell you that what is unknown to you, I'm going to make known to you today. And then he starts rolling them through this primer on theology. You know, in verse 24, he talks about how God is creator. Verse 26, or verse 25, he talks about how God is self-sufficient. Verse 26, God is the ruler. And then he rolls out some quotes from the Greeks, and he brings it all home with a call to repentance. He makes an altar call. But, you know, if we read through this too quickly, we're going to miss some really impressive displays of, of his fluency, Paul's fluency. And, and really how, you know, in the best sense of the word, how connected to the culture he was. Because Paul had not only walked around and perceived their idols, but he had read their authors. He had listened to their music. You know that quote in verse 28, that standalone, it's kind of in parentheses, in him we live and move and have our being. What Paul's doing there is he's referencing a, a top hit 
It's a very popular hymn to Zeus, written by a guy named Epimenides. And then, right after that, he cites this stoic poet, even one of your own poets, he says, once said, for indeed we are his offspring. So for Paul, these expressions of pop culture, art, music, literature, these, these expressions of pop culture told him something about their beliefs and was important and relevant for him to understand. So he studied it. So he pondered it. He considered it. I mean, he may have even enjoyed it. But he did so understanding something crucial about culture. You know, culture is like a coin, and this coin has two sides. There are two sides to the cultural coin. And the one side is that culture carries values. That every time we are reading a book or visiting a website or watching a movie, there is some worldview that is inevitably being radi- is inevitably radiating out from that. So culture carries values, but culture also reveals needs. Culture carries these values, though. And, 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 and the thing is, the Christian, the church kind of understands that. And that's kind of where we get freaked out. Because many, many Christians discern the reality that culture carries values, and we immediately react to that. Because we see believers at times. I mean, let's be honest. You've seen them. I've seen them. We see these believers that mindlessly swallow the culture in an effort to reach the culture. And there's something inside of us that just says, that's, that's wrong. That's, you know, that's not right, the right way to go. And so a lot of folks just swing over to fundamentalism and think, well, no, I'm just putting up a really high firewall, and I'm not going to engage the culture at all. Because there are these people that think that to reach the world, you have to become like the world. Would Jesus sit with liars and hookers and prostitutes and, and tax collectors? Well, yeah, he would. Was it clear that he wasn't one of them? Absolutely. And so, so we have the cultural coin, and on the one side we have this reality that the culture carries values, but on the other side of it, the, the fact that the culture reveals needs. And that we have to, like Paul did, look beyond, you know, what we're experiencing in the culture for what it's saying about people, why it appeals to people. And not just simply live reacting to what the culture is putting forward. There's so, so much of the church or so much of the Christian instinct and Christian reputation within the culture of simply living in reaction to the culture. I mean... To be honest, all of our kids are out of the home now, but as a parent, I think there were many times I reacted to the altars that I thought the kids were erecting or, or, or that they, I, I thought they might be worshiping at or, or some cultural thing that they were preoccupied with or attracted to or admiring. That I think I just instinctively reacted to that rather than studying it enough to understand what is it about this that is, that is appealing and attractive to my kids. I mean, what does it mean that teenagers tend to worship their peers? I mean, that drives parents crazy, but, 
But, but what does it mean? Should we understand that? Should we, should we kind of crawl into that? Why is Drake so popular? Nicki Minaj, what, what's going on there? You know, what is it that attracts? And maybe it's something wrong and something evil. And, and we can call that what it is, but we, we call it that because we, we've understood it. Or, or why does the middle class idolize recreation or idolize their family or idolize their stuff? By the way, the more respectable idols, you know, that exist within the land that get a pass in the church. But, but the middle class lives with that and, and loves that. And, but what does that say about us? So Paul had this gospel facility, which meant that he was able to see what these idols revealed about their longings, see what they revealed about their desires, see what they revealed about even their, <clears throat> their sin tendencies, which meant he was able to sample their music, to listen to, you know, thing, to read their books, to, and he was able to see, you know, traces of divinity in some of those things. So he pulls out these, this poet, he pulls out this author, because he sees this trace of divinity that, that has come forward by somebody that was made in the image of God. So Paul was neither, you know, hip, trafficking in pop culture, nor was he this fundamentalist that was always reacting to pop culture. He was fluent in the gospel, which made him bold. You know, that's... Paul... Paul did not go before the Athenians in the Areopagus wanting to be liked and wanting to be accepted. He basically, you know, met them where they are, where they were, walked them through his perspective, evaluated their culture, graciously portrayed it to them, and then called them to truth. I mean, look at what he says in in verse 31 he says, the t- verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he's fixed a day on which God will judge the world in righteousness. He's saying, you were ignorant, there is a judge, you better repent. So Paul wasn't softening the truth and you know, manipulating the truth just to try to make it more palatable. You ever find yourself doing that? You know, you have, a, you have a, somebody in your family that you love. And so, you know, you, you, you take Jesus and you kind of buff him up a little bit. And you, you, you take those hard edges off and you, you serve that vision up. Because you just don't want them to, be, to encounter the, the Christ that makes a claim upon them and upon everything about them. And that's such a temptation to do. I mean... When I came to Christ in the late 70s, the, the gospel, quote-unquote, that I came to Christ under was like, come to Jesus and he'll give you meaning. Come to Jesus and he'll improve your life. Come to Jesus and he'll meet certain needs that you have. And, and all of that has flashes of truth in it, but it was incomplete. It was this buffed-up version of, of the gospel. It was shined and and, and my point is that we can't be fluent in a language and just speak the easy things. You know, you, you're not fluent in a language if you only know the easy words. You need to know the hard words as well. Paul knew the hard words. Paul was fluent. He had a facility with the gospel because he included these hard truths. And he used words like repentance and judgment 
and we must do the same. So that's stage three, gospel facility. And finally, stage four, which is gospel response. Gospel response. So Paul's gospel perception led to this gospel engagement, which displayed his gospel facility, which resulted in this response that begins in verse 32. People hear of the resurrection of the dead, and some mocked. But then there are these others that say, well, we'll, we'll hear you again on this. And, but Paul goes out from them, and, and some of them joined Paul and believed. And there were these two people in particular that joined him and believed. But think about the different categories of people. Think about the different responses that's being outlined here. First, you have a group that, that they're mocking him in response. You know, it's, it's good to remember that, that, that part of the nature of truth is to provoke people. And we don't provoke them, but truth does have this provocation, pro- provocative nature to it. And when we share it at times, we may be the object of mocking, and we're not the first. But then there are others that appeared as if they were curious. This is what they said. We will hear you again about this. Which, by the way, there's nothing noble about that response. You know, Paul just hit a nerve, and this was like a courteous dismissal. Yeah, you're like patting Paul on the head as he's walking out the door. That was really nice. We'll hear you again. You just go off and get some ice cream. But still others, it says, believed. The God who was unknown became known to them in the person of Jesus Christ. And I I love the way this section ends, this passage ends, with the specific mention of two individuals who came to Christ, Dionysius and Damaris. So, you know, when you think about all the people in Acts 17, all the people that were in the Areopagus, all of the people that were exposed to the message that Paul was preaching, there is this very real sense where Many heard, but very few responded. It was a lot of work, a lot of hours. Paul spent time even before he got there, studying the culture. He's engaging the people once he gets there. He's preaching, but not a whole lot of fruit. Which says to us that at the end of the day, God may be taking our many efforts to reach this community, and we might only see a few come, come as a result which I think should give us a, you know, a, a kind of hope because, because we're no different than Paul. And if we are different in any way, it's that Paul was more gifted. But I struggle with this. I do. I struggle with the fact that, that and maybe you, could, maybe you feel this way. We, we feel like the, you know, we feel foiled by God because we do all of this stuff and, and he does it, or we do just a little bit of stuff, and, and we don't feel like God blesses the little that we've done. Like we have this arrangement with God. If we, this shouldn't the mission, shouldn't evangelism be like getting a soda out of the machine? You, you put the money in, this, the, the soda drops down, it's this equal transaction. And I put the effort in, and the fruit should abound. And God, when the fruit doesn't abound, you're not delivering on this implied covenant that you and I have about the mission. And we feel because we've been praying and inviting people and trying and learning 
that God isn't doing his part. But that's not the message that comes out of Scripture, and that's not the message that comes out from Paul's example from Acts chapter 17. Paul basically lives with this sense that, you know what? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the fruit. I, I worked, I did the best I could, but the fruit, that was up to God. I had to trust that to God. Which is another way to say that the guy who plants and the guy who waters don't always see the fruit. That we won't, we won't see all the fruit as a church of all the things that we do to reach the community. That, that our job is not to be calculating the fruit all the time because it's just with outside of our reach. It's outside of our ability to see and perceive sometimes. And so our job is to sow. The mission is that we're called to sow much and trust God. Sow the seeds, trust God. Which may mean for each and every one of us that we've given up too early. It may mean that with the person that you're thinking about, the person that the Spirit of God is bringing to your mind this morning, it may mean that you've got to try a little more. Do you feel discouraged by the absence of fruit in the lives of the people or the person that you're trying to reach? I think Acts 17 would remind us that it's time to Try a little more. So much, trust God. Sow the seed, trust God. You know, maybe the people around you, the person that you have in view, maybe it seems like they're not only lost, but they're very content to be lost. They're happily lost. Well, try a little more. You know, there was nobody in the whole world who was more content in their fallenness than the very person we're reading about this morning, the Apostle Paul. There was no one who was more self-satisfied, was so convinced in his convictions as an unbeliever that he was right, that he was willing, willing to persecute the Christians and eradicate Christianity from the land. Paul was the same. Maybe we need to try a little more. Do you feel like you've run out of ideas? Don't know what else to do. Don't know where to go. Don't know what new thing to say. Well, you know, just Paul was just there. He was present. He was asking questions. He was offering observations. He was, maybe you you think you're fluent and you're not fluent yet. You got to try a little more. You know, most of us are here today because someone else was fluent enough to speak the gospel to us. They didn't give up on us. They didn't abandon us. They didn't withdraw from us. And you shouldn't either. Try a little more. You know, that's, that's the part of the point, is we just have to keep trying. So let's, let's pray together that God would help us to sow much and trust him. Sow more seed and trust him. And keep us from giving up. That God would give us the grace and the courage to simply try a little more. That verse, 40, verse 34, where this section ends, might also be said of us. So Paul went out from their midst, or, or some men joined him and believed. And among them were these two people. Because out of all of Athens and all of the effort that Paul offered, there was this little deposit because Paul kept trying.
So maybe you need to do the same. Let's pray. Lord, even as we close our Bibles, we realize that you have opened up a screen in our mind. And on that screen, on that mental screen, are pictures of people, faces that we long to see converted, that we long to see happily enjoying a relationship with you. And yet we don't know what the next step is. We don't know how to proceed. Lord, we don't know what it represents to, to be meaningfully engaged with the gospel. And so we pray even now that as we continue on in the service, that you would speak to us and give us one step, one act of service, one way to pray, one place to go, one invitation to extend, one way to communicate to them that you don't react, that we don't react to their idols, that we understand and that we love. And we pray that the result of that would be that we so much and we trust you with the fruit in jesus name we pray amen amen friends can we say thanks to our brother dave for teaching us from god's word this morning so we've been this last six weeks or so looking at this idea of spiritual gifts and how god's calling us to go forward i feel like there's um, there's much that he's going to call us forward, but we're going to have to really trust him with the results. We can't manufacture the outcomes um, in the lives of individuals or in our community. And so thank you, Dave, for that word. and really, really appreciate your time with us this morning. We're going to respond. We're going to respond to Jesus now as we do in a few ways. We're going to invite our younger students class to come in and join us for this time of response. And uh, the first way we're going to respond is through the giving of our tithes and offerings. And um, even as you were teaching today, Dave, I was just thinking about Paul traveling and Paul going to these areas and being able to share the gospel, uh, much of that, all of that was made possible by the gifts, the contributions of generous members of the church, regular, you know, regular church folk, as they might call them. And, and, and Paul is uh, able to go and share the gospel because of the generosity of others. And so as you give today, there's an invitation to, yes, always give as worship. This is not something we do out of guilt or obligation. If you're a guest or a visitor, we're not trying to twist your arm into anything. This is something we want to do as worshipful response to Jesus. But for you to even be encouraged that the, the giving that you do uh, has a, an effect, it, it, prov it provides opportunities for the gospel to continue to go forward. Even as Dave said earlier, that, that there are 15 new churches being planted through the Sojourn Network by God's grace and in part because of your generous contribution. So thank you for that. And while they're collecting the offering as they prepare to hand out the elements for communion, let me just suggest a few discussion questions, things that can help us this week in our homes and community groups. Uh, a few things to kind of think about. Is there anyone in your life that you've been ambivalent toward? Or maybe even that you've been antagonistic toward that God wants you to share the gospel with? Um, how can we move from reacting to culture to truly engaging culture? Uh, have you ever been tempted to water down the gospel? That, that part he was you know, talking about, just maybe you could kind of shaving off some of the, the sharper edges. Number four, how will you uh, practice gospel fluency better after today? And then lastly, uh, what are some idols in our society that we may need to engage with when sharing the gospel. Uh, Dave, I actually thought about getting you one of the representations of the greatest idolatry in our area. I was going to get you a Seahawks jersey, uh, but I forgot, and so uh, it's okay. We'll, we'll have...
yeah, we'll get, we'll get you one later this afternoon here. Also, church family, we want to pray together. We want to pray that God would, would make us more gospel fluent as a church, that we'd always be ready to, to share the good news. You guys can go ahead and, and hand those out. Um, and also, uh, I want to invite you to pray by name for those in your life that God wants you to share the gospel. I think that's such an important thing for us to make, make sure this isn't just impersonal, that it's personal, that we're looking to love and serve and care for people that God's put into our lives. As they're handing out the elements for communion, I'll invite you to, to hold on to those. We'll, we'll celebrate this together in just a moment. Let me read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11 to remind us of this gospel of grace, this, this gospel that we want to be fluent in. The Apostle Paul, the same Apostle Paul, he writes this, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. So friends, remember that this bread that we're breaking together reminds us of Jesus' grace toward us, that when we were antagonistic, his body was broken for us. Do this in remembrance of me. He says, in the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of the bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, there's always an invitation for self-examination. The apostle Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks of the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself and then so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And so friends, I invite you to uh, examine yourself, to pray, God, where, where in my heart have I been hostile or where in my heart have I been fearful and, and allow God to bring you to that place of joyful repentance, hopeful repentance, and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're gonna just hold instrumentally. We'll play uh, just instrumentally here for a moment to give you a chance to do just that, to pray and to reflect. And then in just a moment, I'll invite you to stand and we'll uh, begin our time of responding through song. But let me pray. God, thank you for this word that you brought to us today. Thank you, God, for this opportunity to seek to grow in, in being gospel-fluent people that we have been given the, the, the message of eternal life, the hope that Jesus brings. And so I pray today, God, as we celebrate this table and as we come before you in song, God, I ask and I pray that you would move us with compassion, you'd move us with courage, and that we'd seek to share this gospel with those around us that you've placed in our lives. We pray this in Jesus' good name. Amen.